Welcome, everybody. My name is Sanjay Som. Um, today, we are interviewing Dr. Sarah Walker in this edition of Pubs with BMSIS. This is the podcast of the Broomable Space Institute of Science that interviews authors of scientific papers that have affiliations with our institute. Sarah's paper, entitled The Algorithmic Origins of Life, is posted in a preprint on the archive. Sarah Walker is also a NASA Astrobiology Institute postdoctoral fellow at the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University. Sarah, welcome and thanks for talking with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So your paper touches a topic that's in fact very difficult because I don't think anybody has ever solved it, the origin of life. And it's a topic that uh, doesn't have really a definition. The origin of life is something very mysterious. And traditional approaches have targeted it from two different perspectives, right? So one is a more metabolism first, where we had simple compounds that then were catalyzed by natural environments, such as the minerals. Or the other possibility that's out there is one that's replication first, so where the RNA world, as it's called, uh, originates. And it's essentially one where heredity or genetics happen first. But your paper talks about a fun analogy in dealing with those using electricity. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so basically the one way of thinking about it is in terms of information. So information is really one of the most distinctive features of living systems. And we can really see this by just the language we use when we talk about biology. So everything in terms of DNA and RNA and proteins is usually described as translation, transcription, you know, we use bioinformatics. So information just is pervasive in biology. And so when we're looking at the origin of life, we really have to uh, kind of keep in mind uh, the structure of modern living systems. And we talk, so this is really where these two viewpoints come from in the context of the origin of life. We have the metabolism first, which is based on the fact that we know all modern cells require energy, and they use these uh, very complex metabolic pathways to harness energy from the environment and use it to perform functions. And the other aspect is that we know that DNA and the copying of DNA from generation to generation is really important, and that's you know sort of where the whole replicator first picture comes from, because you need some sort of heredity for generations of organisms to survive. But when we look at it in terms of information, we can really see that there's actually two separate kinds of information storage and processing that are going on in biological systems. So in the metabolism first, it's really an analog information processing because we really have these systems that look almost like they are cabled together to perform a specific task. And they can do one sort of computation in a fixed biochemical network, but that can be switched its operation by other things in a biological system. And on the other side, with DNA, we know it's a digital linear polymer, so it actually it acts a lot like a sort of digital computing reservoir. And so people can do all kinds of fancy things with storing information in DNA. So we recently had the example of George Church storing his entire book <laughs> in a DNA sequence. Wow. So, so the analogy goes when we're thinking about the origin of life that we really can think about two distinct ways of, of managing information in early chemical systems. One is analog and one is digital. So your paper talks about that life does in fact both, right? That's yeah. Life absolutely does both, and actually I don't think it's necessarily very constructive to deconstruct it into two components like that. Agreed. And so one of the things that we've been really thinking a lot about is that uh, the information in biology is not so much distinguished about whether it's analog or digital, which we see in computers and a variety of other systems, but in the fact that the information is actually an active component in the system. And so that's really the main discussion of the paper is what is that uh, 
descriptiveness about and how does that actually inform uh, our understanding of the origin of life? So that means that life is able to change its code, if you will, in responding to the environment, right? Is that what you mean by a top-down information processing? Yeah, so, so the whole thing with the information being active in biology is that we really have this situation where the state of a system, in some sense, dictates its dynamics. So one way to think about it that's conceptually easy but not necessarily scientifically accurate, but we'll just use it as a, as a play example for right now, is that we have a, you know, the genome and proteome systems, for example, or if you want to think in terms of genotype and phenotype. And they're really, there are two systems in biology that can't be separated. They're really, you know, facets of the same aspect of biological organization. But when, what's interesting is that the genotype is usually thought to dictate what the phenotype is, right? So the genes are dictating what the protein expression is. But then we also have feedback between the phenotype and the genotype. So the phenotype, in some sense, um, can actually act, well, it, it can activate and switch on and off individual genes. So there's sort of this, this dynamic aspect where there's some information in the state of the system that actually can change its dynamics. And so this is what I would call like a non-trivial information processing system because the information in the system is actually becoming an active component of the dynamics. And that's, that's a key characteristic of life. So yes. Does that mean that the most popular origin of life theory today, which is the RNA world, is becoming harder to defend in that view? I think so. For seven. <laughs> Well, a naked RNA world probably doesn't work for a lot of chemical reasons. It's difficult to imagine RNA emerging de novo in a prebiotic soup right. and coming out of chemical complexification process just because it's really hard to get RNA nucleotides prebiotically. And it's actually even harder to get any kind of RNA oligomer. So any kind of longer polymer of RNA um, is very hard to make because they get hydrolyzed very easily. So just from that perspective, the RNA world is really difficult. So you can imagine that there must have been a lot of other stuff going on during that period, other kinds of chemistry. So what the function, of, I think, of an early RNA world was not to be some kind of flat, one-dimensional evolving system, but to act as information control over an already self-organizing uh, chemistry. And that information control kind of fits into this whole picture that we're building, where it's really the information dictating the dynamics, and that's the transition we need to look for. Cool. So can this strategy on focusing on information allow the differentiation between what I think is still a very strong debate in terms of can we differentiate between very complex chemistry and really simple biology? Uh, well, that's the ultimate goal is to be able to be able to clarify what that distinction is and potentially even to use that um, in terms of identifying life on other planets. But right now, I think we're really far from that. It's one thing to recognize that these kind of top-down information effects might be important in biology, but what we need to do now is go out and measure them and try to understand. So what do you mean uh, by top-down? Sorry. So what I mean by top-down is this whole idea of the, the state actually, in some sense, dictating the dynamics. Okay. So usually we think of all causal influences, like in, in physics, for example, all causal influences tend to emanate from bottom, bottom layers of systems. So usually this is kind of the traditional reductionist picture of science where you can derive everything in the universe from the interactions of subatomic particles. Right. Now with this, this whole idea of top-down causation is just is that higher levels actually can set constraints that effectively become a cause. Um, and so in biology, what we're arguing is that the information and the state of the system is actually those constraints that are dictating the cause. So this is where 
it's a major conceptual leap because you're effectively saying information, which is this sort of abstract uh, global system-wide, you know, property of a system, is becoming a causal force in its own right. So you're saying that an abstraction has causal efficacy in living systems. Uh, so that's a major conceptual break from uh, more traditional approaches to dynamics, particularly in physics. And But it does seem to be a constructive way about thinking about the origin of life. And it puts life more in the class of systems which are categorized by Turing rather than traditional physics. So it's kind of saying, you know, we need to depart from our traditional way of doing physics and look more at, at Turing-style physics in order to understand biology. And that's, I think that's very paradigm-shifting because it's a completely new way of understanding the original life. And one of the reasons why I really enjoy your paper, Sarah, is that it makes very clear analogies to computers and electrical systems. And in particular, the paper talks about how a living system is analogous to a von Neumann automaton. And although yeah. the mapping is imperfect, it does provide a useful way to think about a living system. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that really goes back to Turing as well. So von Neumann um, was really fascinated with Turing's ideas. And he thought that the whole concept of universal computation could potentially be translated to an idea of universal constructability in some sense. Like, is there is it possible to build a machine that could build any other machine? And if it could build any machine, then it could, should be able to build itself. And so he called it a universal constructor, sort of an homage to Turing's universal computer. And, uh, and so, so the ideas of, of the logical structure of the system are actually fairly similar to what we see in modern biology, require some kind of instructional information input, the system reads it out, and then it can construct the object uh, it's being told to, to build. So from that perspective, it's really fascinating. And it is sort of a fundamental shift in, in how information is, is being processed in systems. Uh, so the uh, example we talk about in the paper, is about trivial replication versus non-trivial replication. And so a von Neumann uh, self-replicator is capable of reproducing itself in a non-trivial way because it's actually explicitly programmed. And so in some sense, it's constrained by the physics and the potential chemistry of the environment it's in, but it has the ability to manipulate it. Now, if you look at a trivial replicator, which might be something like a non-enzymatic template replicator, so a traditional RNA world-type model, or we give the example in the paper also of Penrose tiles, which are these it's a really cool paper uh, by Roger Penrose and his father from like the 1950s about a simple self-replicating system, uh, which consisted of two shapes of block. And uh, if you shake, if they're aligned in a tray and you shake the tray, depending way the block goes, the two blocks hook together, you reproduce that structure. So two orientations, there's a seed event that happens when the first two blocks link up and then it propagates through the rest of the system. And the, the, the point with using this example is that that replication process is completely dictated by the physics of the situation. You can, you can explain it completely to a T. There's no higher level algorithmic information or explicit encoding of information partially dictating that process. So it's completely different from what we see in a von Neumann replicator or living systems. And so there's a, there's a big shift when you go from these trivial systems that are completely dictated by local physics and chemistry to these non-trivial information processes that use a wider context and, and, and constraints on a global system to actually partially dictate their dynamics. Cool. So, I mean, that brings me to my next point, and because we cannot talk about the origin of life without talking about evolution. <laughs> and Darwin is, of course, correct in saying that evolution is a fundamental property of a living system. 
But that's not the whole story, right? Because from the informational point of view, there was a necessary transition from information flowing solely bottom-up to then having a top-down processing. Yeah. And that's something that Darwinian evolution does not anticipate. No, it definitely doesn't. And so one of the, the points that we try to make is that a trivial replicator and a non-trivial replicator are both completely equally capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. Yet one seems so much more complex and capable of increasing its complexity with time than the other. And so like a trivial replicator, it, it can evolve. So I can imagine an individual RNA sequence that can mutate in its replication process and undergo some sort of simple, you know, very simplistic evolution where I'm just evolving the, the physical RNA structure. But that's not very robust because if I move very far away from that RNA sequence, my system collapses. I might not have a self-replicator anymore. Uh, it's very sensitive to environmental perturbations because all of its replication by that local physics and chemistry. And you can contrast this with a non-trivial replicator where I have to evolve both the algorithms dictating the dynamics and the physical structures at the same time. And that gives you a lot more possibility for becoming a, a more complex system because you have this sort of coupling. And it's the same kind of thing as saying the coupling between the phenotype and the genotype. So evolution is really capable of making the distinction between the two, even though it's a process that operates over both of them. So it's essential to life, but it's not necessarily the critical transition that we really need to define in the context of its origin. So the next question is then why this transition happened in the first place, right? And that's obviously something not that your paper addresses, but perhaps something you're working on next. Yeah, so, I mean, you could speculate a lot of things. <laughs> Probably it goes down to evolutionary robustness, right? So, so we usually talk about things being selected for because they're, they tend to be uh, more competitive or more, more robust in a particular environment. Um, and so the way I, I've been thinking about it lately, and these are very loose ideas because this is sort of, you know, the next direct direction thing, is that information control, so this, this aspect where certain elements in your system are controlling operation of other elements in your system, gives you a lot, uh, it makes for a much more robust system. And so if, if a system, a chemical system is capable of evolving information control, it's much more likely to stay around longer than any kind of other chemical system that might pop out of a soup. And so the, the idea there is then that those are, of course, the systems that, you know, become living because they, they do have this robustness associated with them. But that all needs to be worked out. But so, so that would be one possible explanation. So I cannot resist but ask a question about astrobiology, although this is origin of life. But when looking at life in other worlds, um, from what your paper says, it's impossible to point to something and at one instant decide whether it's alive or not, right? So you can't, yeah, that'd be like pointing to a rock and being like, it's alive. No. Um, so, so one of the important things about biological systems is their active information process really means that, that the, the aliveness part of them is a dynamic property. And so you can't actually look at a static configuration and identify it as living or not because you need to know what the causal structure of the system is. And to do that, you actually need to look at, at its dynamics. And so it is possible potentially to measure a causal structure, but you, you need to do it as a dynamical time series. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Sarah's paper, entitled The Algorithmic Origins of Life, is posted in a preprint on the archive. And you can read uh, her summaries of the article on our website, bmsis.org slash publications. Thank you, Sarah. This was awesome. It was fun to be here.